The Word of God is not anemic. The Word of God is not weak. The Word of God is powerful and it is sharp. And when you read it, it will bring conviction of sin. And it will encourage and comfort, but the Word of God does surgery. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, we're going to open the Gospel of Mark today, Lord willing, for the next 90 days or so, we'll be um, studying the life of Christ uh, in the Gospel of Mark. The Irish evangelist Gypsy Smith once said, there are five Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the Christian. And some people will never read the first four. Today, we're going to be opening the second of the four Gospels, the Gospel of Mark. Mark is the shortest of all the Gospels, 16 chapters, and it's the most translated book in the world. No other book of anywhere appears in as many languages. The word Gospel means good news, and the word Gospel originally meant joyful tidings, and it really had nothing to do with the Bible. It was associated with the cult of Roman emperor worship. When the emperor was celebrating an anniversary or a birthday or a sentinel event like so many years in power, they would, they would obviously send out good news of that and they would have a big festival and, the, and the, the good news of those festivals were called evangels, where we get evangelical, or gospels. The biblical gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ has come to provide eternal life to sinful people through his ministry. Now, the four gospels are much more than just four biographies or four histories. They're four different and yet very unified accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Each one of the Gospels is written by a different author, a particular individual with a particular point of view for a particular audience. And together, these four Gospels tell us what God wants us to know about the Yothri ministry of His Son, Jesus Christ, so that we can be saved. Just to give you a very high-level overview of the four Gospels, Matthew, also known as Levi, his surname was Levi, was one of Jesus' disciples, obviously, and he was a Jewish tax collector for the Roman government. His audience, Matthew wrote his book for a Jewish audience, and his purpose was to prove that Jesus Christ was, in fact, the long-promised Messiah, the son of David, whose reign had been prophesied in the Old Testament. So Matthew over and over again quotes the Old Testament. And his decision to do that is he's writing a book to prove to the Jewish nation that Jesus Christ is the rightful king of the Jews. And he focused on what Jesus said. Now he knew shorthand when you're a tax gatherer, you kept good records. And so Matthew records verbatim many, many, many of Jesus' sermons and sayings word for word because he knew shorthand. Luke was not an eyewitness of Jesus' life, death, or resurrection. He came on the scene later. He was a Gentile physician, an MD. His 
audience was Greek-speaking Gentiles. He was probably the most careful historian that we know of in that particular era. And as a physician, Luke's focus was on the humanity of Jesus Christ. He records John the Baptist's birth. He records Jesus' birth in Luke 2. Most of you know the Christmas story. Great detail. And Luke, above all the other authors, focuses on Jesus' acts of mercy and compassion and healing. He talks a lot about healing. So he presents Jesus Christ as the perfect son of man who compassionately offers salvation to the whole world. Matthew focused on what Jesus said. Luke focused on how Jesus felt. John, who's the beloved disciple, was Jesus' first cousin. He was a very intimate companion of Jesus during his ministry on earth. And John's gospel was written for Christians. And he focuses on the deity of Christ, the lordship of Christ, the godhood of Christ. John emphasized faith in Christ, and the word believe occurs 98 times in John. It is throughout the book, believe, believe, believe. And John focused on the identity of Christ, who Jesus was, the Son of God. Now today we're going to focus on Mark. Mark was likely an eyewitness to some of the events he wrote about, not all of them. But really importantly, Mark was a very, very close associate of the, of the Apostle Peter. And Peter was one of the three, Peter, James, and John, who was with Jesus virtually everywhere he went. So Mark's audience was a Roman audience. And you're going to notice that almost the entire gospel is slanted toward the kinds of things that Romans would be impressed with was action and power. So we're going to take a look at this gospel through that lens. Mark didn't report on what Jesus said, what Jesus felt, who Jesus was. Mark reported on what Jesus did, his actions. And he presents Jesus' power over disease, Jesus' power over demons, Jesus' power over death. So his focus is Christ as the servant, not as the king, not as the son of God, not as the son of man, but Christ the servant who meets the physical and spiritual needs of people. So the testimony of the early church throughout was that Mark was the scribe of this gospel. The material for this gospel came from Peter. And at 110 AD, there was a church father named Papias. He quoted the testimony of John the Elder. John the Elder was, of course, the apostle John. And says that Mark was a very, very close associate, heard Peter preach routinely and recorded Peter's memory of his years with Jesus. So when you read Mark's gospel, you're really reading the memoirs, if you will, or the memories of the apostle Peter. The details in this gospel are very, very vivid because they came from an eyewitness. Peter was an eyewitness to everything that happened here. So the, the author, Mark, is probably very likely John Mark. And we hear about John Mark in the book of Acts in the epistles. John Mark was a Jewish Christian, lived in Jerusalem with his mother Mary. And when you go to Acts 12, remember Peter was in prison and they were praying for him and he got out of prison. The angel uh, let, let him out of prison and he went to the house of Mary. That was John Mark's mother. And it was the central meeting place for the early church. So it was a pretty part of a large house. Mark was also probably the young man in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said he was, he, was, he was dressed in kind of a sheet, a linen cloth, and they grabbed the sheet and said he fled away without any clothes at all. That's probably this John Mark, the author of, of this gospel. In, in 1 Peter 5, uh, Peter calls Mark my son. He calls Mark my son, which indicates that probably Mark came to faith in Christ through uh, Peter's ministry. 
Now, as you recall, Mark, this John Mark, accompanied Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, and they were going to Crete and, and Asia, and he left them halfway through. He deserted them and went back to Jerusalem. We're not told why, but Paul was really, really upset about it. And when they wanted to go on the second missionary journey, Barnabas wanted to take Paul, and Paul says, forget about it. He deserted us the first time. We're not taking him the second time. So Paul and Barnabas split. Paul took Silas, went on a second missionary journey. Barnabas took Mark, and they ministered in Crete and planted churches there. And later on, Mark served with Paul in Rome. And then Peter, because Peter went to Rome as well a little bit later. So Mark had been a failure in ministry earlier, but it's interesting that in 2 Timothy, Paul says, bring Mark to me because he's useful to us in ministry. So it's intriguing that Mark, who was an earlier failure in ministry, was discipled by Peter. Would you think Peter knew anything about ministry failure? Yeah, he denied Jesus Christ three times. So Peter the failure was restored by Jesus, who discipled Mark the failure, who then became a useful apostle. Useful minister. So, you know, it, it, what it demonstrates to us is that whatever our failure, and we all have it, doesn't have to be final because God is in the human restoration business. Amen? That's the only reason we're here. You guys need some more caffeine. Amen? All right. So we'll make sure you're awake. So the Holy Spirit ultimately is the author of the Bible, and he used Mark to write this gospel probably between 57 and 59 A.D., the early part of, of uh, Emperor Nero's reign, uh, Nero reigned from uh, 54 to 68, 14 years of terror. So he wrote it in the early part, and he probably wrote it from Rome. So Mark was probably in Rome when he written, and his audience, of course, was Rome as well. This gospel is unique in, in several respects. First of all, as we said, it focuses on what Jesus did, not what he said. So Mark records 18 miracles, a lot for any gospel. He only records four parables. He's not focused on what Jesus said. He's focused on what Jesus did. And he portrays Jesus always on the move. The Greek word immediately, 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 or you may have the old KJV that says straight away. It shows up in this gospel 42 times in the Greek. So you can look at Peter and say, yeah, Peter is an action kind of a guy. He's a fisherman. Peter's not an... Uh, Peter's not a, a man of finesse. Peter's not a man of words. Peter wants to know, did you get it done? And what's next? Let's move on. So this word immediately shows up 42 times. In the first chapter we're going to look at today, eight times in one chapter it says the word immediately. Jesus did this, then immediately did that, then immediately did that. So this is an action gospel, very much so. Mark is really the Cliff Notes version. You guys ever take Cliff Notes in high school? Cheat notes or whatever. Yeah, we did it all the time. It's the news brief. He's like a news reporter. He's on a very tight schedule. Just the facts. Get to the point. Move to the next point. So this gospel moves. Secondly, not only is Mark focused on action, when you read his words, he's very descriptive. He's very vivid. Uh, it's obviously an eyewitness that could recall the details. This book in Greek is not academic. It's very down-home, common, ordinary, simple Greek language. He would, you, you, you would say, this guy communicates with the average person on the street because Peter was not an academic. Peter was a fisherman. 
He was a tradesman. He was blue collar. And so he talked the language of average everyday people. And very, um, Mark took that when he wrote this gospel. Third thing about Mark, Mark is very, I don't know what the word is. How many of you have ever seen Candid Camera? You're aging yourself. Where you, 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 really, you really see people like they are, right? Screwing up. Mark describes people in very clear terms and very candid. He, he, if, any, if any gospel writer is going to point out the failure of the disciples, where they didn't, just didn't believe, they screwed up, it's Mark. If anybody's going to describe people's emotions, how somebody got hot about something or angry about something or grieved about something, Mark talks a lot about that. He talks about Jesus, not only his sorrow, but his, also his anger over unbelief and things like that. And lastly, Mark's gospel is dominated by Jesus' movement to the cross. This gospel really is divided into two halves. You've got the half before Mark 8.31. Mark 8.31 is the dividing point of the book. The first half of the gospel is before Mark 8.31. After that, it's all the way to the cross, after Mark 8.31. So the first half of this book focuses on the authority of Jesus and his acts of power. The second half focuses on the suffering of Jesus uh, in obedience to his heavenly Father. So Mark is going to portray Jesus as God's servant. In the first half of this book, Jesus is serving with power. In the second half of the book, Jesus is serving through suffering. And the key verse in Mark, Rob's going to put this on the screen, is Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So here's our first principle. Those who follow Jesus are called to serve like Jesus, which means to work for the benefit of others, not yourself. Those who follow Jesus are called to serve like Jesus, which means to work for the benefit of others, not yourself. We're going to see this theme over and over and over and over. This is a red thread that runs through this book. So let's pick up the narrative in chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The phrase, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is really the title of this book. It's really the theme of the book. So Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Joshua, Yeshua, and it means the Lord is salvation. That's what the word Jesus means, the Lord is salvation. And Christ or Christos means anointed one, the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah. So Jesus or Joshua, the Lord is salvation, Christ, Christos, the anointed one or Messiah. So Jesus is his human name, Christ is the office, what he came to do. He's the anointed ruler over God's coming kingdom. So the deity of Christ is a central theme in this first one. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And what Mark is saying is, Paul said it, Matthew says it, throughout the scripture, Jesus is the exact same essence as God, the precise, identical DNA as the Father. So Mark now, if you look at verse 2 through probably the first 8, 10 verses, He's going to give you the divine identity of Jesus Christ, and he's going to verify that by witnesses. And I'm just going to high-level this before we get to the point of what we're going to camp on this morning. Mark is an eyewitness to the deity of Christ, and he validates Jesus by saying he's the Son of God. Mark then quotes two Old Testament witnesses, prophets, Isaiah and Malachi, and they say, 
This Messiah is going to have a forerunner who comes to prepare his way. The herald is coming to announce his coming, and that's, of course, John the Baptist. So Martin gives you a very brief description of John the Baptist. He lives in the wilderness with locusts and wild honey and calls the nation to repentance before the coming Messiah. He then gives you a very, very brief description of the baptism of Jesus Christ. A couple of verses, that's it. John baptizes Jesus. God the Father then says, this is my beloved Son. You want an endorsement of the deity of Christ? God the Father says about Jesus, this is my Son. That, I would say, is your highest endorsement of all as to the deity of Christ. John the Baptist has a very brief ministry, about six months. That's it. So, you know, God prepared him his whole life to have a ministry for six months. And it was highly effective ministry. After the, after the baptism of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, all four Gospels tell us, actually uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that God led, the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to endure 40 days of fasting and three major temptations by Satan. Rob's going to show you a map of the Dead Sea area, the Judean wilderness, where Jesus was tempted by Satan, called the Mount of Temptation. This is obviously very desert, deserted, dry, tough area. There's no food laying on the ground here, folks. And Satan knew that while Jesus was in the flesh, after 40 days of hunger, he was going to be temptable, subject to temptation he was in the flesh. Temptation is an inducement to sin. You're not sinning when you're tempted. Satan is going to knock on your door and induce you to sin every day you live. A temptation is an inducement to rebel against God's person and God's plan, and Satan does that three different times with Jesus. And you say, why would Satan want to tempt Jesus to sin? Well, in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve fell, God told Satan, there is going to come one of the seed of the woman who is going to destroy you. And that's Messiah. Satan's got a really good memory. He doesn't suffer from dementia. And he knew that this promised Messiah was his destroyer. So his point is, if I can seduce Jesus into sinning and rebelling against God, I can disqualify him as the Savior. I can also disqualify him as my judge. And therefore, I get out of my get-out-of-jail-free card out of the lake of fire. And as you recall, Satan quoted Scripture in tempting Jesus, and Jesus quoted Scripture back at him and defeated him. Here's the key issue, though. It's not enough to know Scripture. You actually have to obey it. You actually not have to just know it. You have to actually do it. So Jesus didn't quote Scripture back to Satan. He obeyed it and didn't fall into that trap. So Mark then recounts the call of the first four apostles, Matthew, Mark, I mean, uh, Simon, Andrew, James, and John. And then he says they immediately left everything and followed Jesus. That's a whole other message, but we're not going to camp on that today. Then Jesus spends the next 12 months in Judea, southern Israel, ministering, healing, and preaching. Rob's going to give you a map of Jesus' journey north. Mark doesn't even spend any time on the whole first 12 months of Jesus' ministry. Mark picks up beginning the second year of Jesus' ministry, and Luke does the same thing. Luke tells us that at the end of Jesus' first year of ministry, he travels north from southern Judea to Nazareth, his hometown. Now, Judea to Nazareth is about 70 miles, 
So you're walking on foot about 70 miles. That's several days. Jesus goes north. By the way, Judea's in the south. That's a region. Galilee's in the north. That's another region. Nazareth is Jesus' hometown in Galilee. He goes to the north because the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem, in Judea and the south, were actively opposing Jesus because they were jealous. Jesus was attracting bigger crowds than they were, and they were starting to really persecute him. And he didn't want to die before his time, and so he went up north. So Jesus comes to Nazareth, his hometown. He goes to the synagogue, and they invite him to teach. And everything is fine until he tells the hometown crowd that I came not just to bless you, I came to be a blessing to the Gentiles as well. And that's when the hometown crowd just loses their cookies. Because they believe that God belonged to them. And only them. And the fact that God would come and care about the Gentiles was just anathema. I mean, it was blasphemy. They could not deal with that. Of course, we do that too today, don't we? Don't you all believe God is a Baptist? I say that tongue-in-cheek, but the bottom line is, it's very easy to believe that God agrees with me. God is not denominational. God doesn't come in to take sides. When God comes in, He takes over. Abraham Lincoln said during the Civil War, because everybody was saying, well, God's on the side of the North, God's on the side of the South. Abraham Lincoln said, I'm not concerned on which side God is. I'm concerned that I'm on His side. So we need to center God as the center of gravity, not our particular point of view. The Jews missed that. They thought they owned God and no one else. And of course, Jesus came to say, I came for the world, Jews and Gentiles alike, not just you. So they got so furious at him, they tried to kill him. They hauled him outside the city, tried to throw him off the cliff called Mount Precipice, which as Rob is going to show you, it's to the edge of their city, right over the edge of Nazareth. And I've been there, you, you're overlooking the... Valley of Jezreel. This was their first attempt, but not their last attempt to kill their own Messiah because they didn't want to hear what he had to say. So this plain below, I don't know which slide Rob's showing you, yep, an awful lot of farmland. This is the, the heartland of the agricultural community up in northern Israel, a lot more rainfall up there. This valley is extremely famous. Saul was killed on Mount Gilboa at one end of the valley. Josiah was killed in this valley by Pharaoh Necho. Of Egypt, this will be the plain, the staging ground for the Battle of Armageddon in Revelation. The battle will take place in Jerusalem, but this is where the world's armies will uh, fight. There's been numerous battles in this valley. It's an enormously productive farming area and a nice open plain to organize armies. So Jesus is rejected by his hometown, and they've known him for 30 years. They said, This is the son of Joseph. What can he say to us? He's not a prophet, obviously. So Jesus leaves there and goes 25 miles down to the lakeside fishing village of Capernaum, which is located on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, which Rob's going to show you now. The Sea of Galilee um, is really more of a lake. It's about 7 miles wide, about 13 miles long. It's about 140 feet deep, not a big lake. It gets fed by underground springs and by the Jordan River, which flows in and flows out. But Nazareth is about 1,300 feet above sea level. The Sea of Galilee is about 700 feet below sea level, 690 feet. So it's about a 2,000-mile walk, a 2,000-mile or 2,000 feet decline from Nazareth to the Sea of Galilee. 
But if you're going from the Sea of Galilee back up, it's a 20-mile walk uphill. You go up about 2,000 feet. So uh, the Sea of Galilee is one of the lowest freshwater lakes in the world. I think it is the lowest freshwater lake in the, in the world at that point. So Capernaum is the hometown of Peter, James, John, and Andrew. This is a fishing village, and they were all fishermen. Uh, and that was their uh, hometown. And Jesus is going to make Capernaum the hub of his ministry in northern Israel for a significant period of time. And he does that for lots of reasons. It's a very strategic location. Rob is going to show you some trade routes. There's two major trade routes connecting Egypt in the south, Mesopotamia in the north and the east. You have the Via Maris, the way of the sea, and you're going to see that way of the sea is a, a, a coastal route. And then you have the King's Highway, which is an interior route. The Via Maris, uh, goes along the ocean from Egypt north, and then it cuts inland. And if you look at the map, you're going to see it goes right by the Sea of Galilee, that little yellow line, right on the way to Damascus. So there's an enormous amount of merchant trade that goes right through the Via Martyrs, stops at Capernaum, literally, um, and he knows that if he sets up his headquarters there, those merchants are going to be exposed to the gospel. And then they're going to take the gospel with them wherever they go. So this was a very strategic location. Capernaum had a Roman garrison, which means a Roman uh, set of soldiers. It was a customs tax office for the Romans, so it was the center of trade for the whole central region of Galilee. Jesus, like Paul, very strategic in terms of choice of location. Let's pick up the narrative at verse 21. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and began to teach. Verse 22, they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Here's the principle. Jesus taught God's word with authority, and so must we. Jesus taught God's word with authority, and so must we. Now, Jesus taught in a synagogue. A Jewish synagogue was simply a local meeting place where People came together. The synagogue system had begun really after 586 B.C. When, when Jerusalem was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and he captured the nation and, and put them in captivity in Babylon. When they came back 70 years later, the temple, of course, had been destroyed. So that central form of worship was no longer available to them. So synagogues were local churches. They were local meeting points where the scriptures were read and explained by uh, the... Um, uh, priests on the Sabbath, Levites. During the week, they were schools, uh, and uh, they were also civil courts. So the synagogue had a religious function. You worship there on Sunday, but it was a civil courtroom during the week, and it was a school during the week. So a synagogue was kind of a combination between a local church and a community center. I mean, it was the center of community life in any given town. It's where you met to worship, conduct civic business, etc., etc. So you could form a synagogue with 10 men. It didn't take a huge number. Uh, the region of Galilee, Josephus tells us at this time, had about 240 villages. And every one of these villages had a synagogue. So if you wanted to talk to local village, if you wanted to talk to the people, you went to the synagogue. So you're going to see Jesus always communicating in synagogues. That's where the people were, right? And it was always on the Sabbath because that's when they came. So Jesus does a lot of miracles on the Sabbath. 
that's where people are. So if you went to the Sabbath and you're a visiting rabbi, they invited you to speak. And Jesus is now speaking. And the text says that Jesus spoke God's word with authority. That's an interesting word. It means rule and dominion and power and conviction and objective truth. The average rabbi or scribe at this time did not speak with authority. And they certainly didn't speak with originality because most of the time, the rabbis at this point in time were quoting other rabbis. Rabbi so-and-so says blah, blah, blah. Rabbi so-and-so who died 50 years ago says blah, blah, blah. So it was a very quoting other people kind of a thing, their opinions. The rabbis at this point in time, they spoke in riddles. They used a lot of scholarly jargon. They were focused on a lot of religious minutia. You know, when you wash your hands, your elbows up this high or this high because water's got to run off them a certain way. So it was a lot about ritual. How do, you, how do you be ritually cleansed and ritually pure? There was just a lot of minutia. And they were exposed to explain the scriptures to people, and they did to some degree, but they focused a lot on trivialities. They were typically revered, and they were given the name rabbi. And a rabbi means honored one. And of course, all scribes coveted to be called rabbi because it was a very prestigious name. Unfortunately, the rabbis became proud and they believed that God favored them because they could read and write and because they handled the scripture. Now remember, the average person at this period of time was illiterate. They couldn't read. So the only way they could know truth of the Bible is someone would teach it and they heard it and they learned by observation and listening. They didn't learn from books. It says that Jesus taught with authority. He didn't teach like them. He didn't teach like the scribes. Jesus taught God's word in a very simple and understandable way. Jesus used earthly stories. He used parables and real-life illustrations. He used illustrations that people actually lived. He used illustrations about farming and fishing and seed planting and harvesting. And the average person, it was an agricultural society, they said, I can relate to that. You're talking my language. And Jesus was a master of using illustrations that people could understand. Jesus' teaching was very concrete, very practical. He focused on the essential. He didn't mess around with the trivial or the peripheral. He didn't, he didn't resort to esoteric um, academic conversations. He, his teaching resonated with people because he spoke God's truth. He didn't give you a human opinion. The scribes taught God's word from a human point of view. This is what I think. This is what so-and-so rabbi says about so-and-so. And you know, in our, our culture today, you go to many, many churches, you're going to hear pastors quote Aristotle or Plato or Emerson or some human opinion. Jesus didn't quote any human opinion. He taught God's word from God's point of view. Jesus says, this is what God says. This is what God means. This is what God wants you to do about it. Pretty simple, pretty concrete from God's perspective. It says Jesus not only taught with authority. It says Jesus put a priority on preaching God's word to people. You're going to find out in the next day or two, Jesus is going to leave Capernaum. And the people want him to stay because they want more miracles. 
They want more demon uh, exorcisms. They want more divine interventions. Jesus says in Luke 4, 43, I must preach the gospel to the other cities also, for I was sent for that purpose. Verse 44, so Jesus kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. You know, for us, it's pretty clear. If Jesus prioritized preaching God's word, do you think we should? Clearly, the church should make it a focus. And one of the reasons Valley Baptist Church, God has blessed this uh, fellowship is because, go and see him before I die, God's word. God's word converts sinners, it comforts saints, it evangelizes the lost, it edifies the saved. Hebrews 4.12 For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Do you get that word picture? Do you get the picture here that the Word of God is not anemic? That the Word of God is not weak? The Word of God is powerful and it is sharp. And when you read it, it will bring conviction of sin. And it will encourage and comfort. But the Word of God does surgery. God's Word is not sermonettes for Christianettes. God's Word will never coddle human beings with sweet lies about tolerating wickedness. Because God's Word is designed to kill sin not nurture it. That's why the world hates it. The battle for the Bible will continue because Satan understands the power of the Word of God, and that's why the Church of Jesus Christ needs to emphasize it. So when Jesus is teaching with authority, he's teaching God's Word, the people are amazed. It just literally means they're astonished, they're overwhelmed. In the vernacular, we would say it blew their minds. It translates they were struck out of their senses with overpowering emotion. I mean, it was like, whoa. So Jesus wasn't repeating somebody else's thoughts. He was speaking God's word because he was God. It's interesting. When it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. You know who's talking? Jesus Christ is talking. Jesus Christ is the creator. We know that. So he spoke the entire universe into existence with only the words of his mouth. And Mark is proving the deity of Christ by revealing the power of Jesus' words. He's now going to demonstrate Christ's deity by proving Jesus, by demonstrating the power of Jesus' deeds. Go to verse 23. Jesus is preaching the word with power and people are amazed, and Satan is not stupid. Verse 23. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him and saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. Here's the principle. Jesus' power can free anyone from their slavery to sin and Satan because Jesus is God. Jesus' power can free anyone from their slavery to sin and Satan because Jesus is God. So Mark uses the word unclean spirit. It's another word for demon. Demons are fallen angels. They are 
spirits who chose to follow Satan in his mutiny against God and were subsequently thrown out of heaven for their rebellion. Demons are disembodied evil spirits who, as far as we know in Scripture, apparently continually seek a human body to live in. Apparently, we know that when Jesus uh, was threw out the demons out of the uh, demoniac at the Gadarenes on the east side, they said, let us go into the pigs. Apparently, they need a body. I don't know too much about this. I don't know whether demons are in some series of they're more comfortable in a body, but apparently they seek a human body to live in. And like Satan, they're followers of Satan, they disguise themselves as angels of light in order to deceive people. You have to remember that just a few weeks ago, I mean a year ago, Jesus had a direct confrontation with Satan in the Judean wilderness and defeated him. Satan didn't give up, neither do his demons. Jesus is now preaching God's word. People are amazed and might be saved. And Satan is going to disrupt and deceive those who are convicted by the truth of Jesus' preaching. There's a man in the audience. He's possessed by a demon. And now he screams. By the way, Christians cannot be possessed or controlled by demons. You are indwelt with who? God the Holy Spirit, and God the Holy Spirit will never set up residence with demons. Ain't going to happen. You, under the authority and control of the Holy Spirit of the living God, no demon can live in you or possess you because you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He lives in your body. That doesn't mean you can't be harassed by demons. It doesn't mean you can't be attacked, but you can never be possessed. 1 John 4, 4. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And the he that is in you is God the Holy Spirit, and the he that is in the world is Satan and his demons. And greater is he that is in you. So the demon in this man now screams with fear. He's terrified by the holiness of Christ and the power of Jesus' preaching. We do know that Satan is a liar, who he is. We do know that Satan uses false religion to deceive people into believing lies that will send them to hell. We know that there's demons that attend every worship service, hoping to distract, hoping to deceive, hoping to do anything but for people to come with a life-giving encounter with a living Christ. Satan hates the gospel. Because the gospel sets people free from slavery in Satan's kingdom and transfers them into the freedom of God's kingdom. So you have kingdoms in conflict. You have Satan's kingdom in the world and you have God's kingdom in the heart. And there is always going to be conflict over the souls of men and women. Don't kid yourself. We are in warfare. So we know that Satan will always oppose God's truth because the gospel smashes his lies. It shines the floodlight on how to be saved and how to be reconciled, as Pastor Roger was talking this morning, with God. So those who reject Christ and follow Satan's lies, they reject God's word for two reasons. Number one, they believe Satan's lies, they're deceived, and number two, they love their sin. And I know you say, how could anybody love their sin? Look in the mirror. If sin never caused pleasure, none of us would do it. 
Satan lies because he said sin will bring pleasure. Yeah, it does. Very short-term pleasure. And then it brings massive long-term pain. And most of us have scar tissue from believing those lies. Okay? So the demon is screaming in fear, and he says, what business do we have with each other? He's talking to Jesus. Could be translated, why are you meddling with us? Is this the time of our final destruction? He's talking about conflict. Because when Jesus came to earth, he invaded Satan's kingdom in order to set Satan's prisoners free. That's what the gospel does. So this demon knows this is a fight to the death over the souls of men and women. God wants people in heaven. Satan wants people in hell. There's going to be conflict. And the demon says, have you come to destroy us? Really, that's a statement of fact. You have come to destroy us. Because these demons know that Jesus is their judge and he's going to send them to the eternal lake of fire and they dread that certain day of coming judgment. I'll tell you why this demon is terrified. He knows who Jesus is. The Holy One of God. This demon remembers being thrown out of heaven by the Holy One of God, by Jesus Christ himself, at the rebellion somewhere before the fall of Adam and Eve. He's already faced Jesus and been ejected. So he fears Christ's power and Christ's holiness because he's encountered that. Unholy Satan and unholy demons have been ejected by the Holy One of Heaven. And now this Holy One of Heaven has come to invade earth where Satan has been ruling. When Jesus came to earth, it was an invasion of Satan's kingdom. And Satan and the demons know it. So you're going to see this conflict throughout the Gospel of Mark between Satan and demons and Christ. Demons are always present on earth. They have been since the fall. But most of the time they're undercover. Most of the time they're under wraps. Throughout all of the Bible, outside of the Gospels, there's only four mentions of demons in Scripture. The witch at Endor with King Saul, Ahab's lying prophets, the sons of Sceva in Acts, and the fourth one, I'll think of it here in a second, but only four mentions of demons. But during Christ's ministry, you see demon activity all over the place. Satan knows that Christ is invading his kingdom, is going to crush his head, Genesis 3, and so he unleashes the power of hell during this period of time because 1 John 3.18 tells us Christ came to earth to destroy the works of the devil. Now, you're going to look at this and say, well, Jesus exercised, or in other words, got rid of this demon from this man, but he didn't use any formula, he didn't use any prayer, he didn't use any mumbo-jumbo. He says, come out of him. He simply issued the word and, in essence, commanded the demon to be muzzled. Be quiet. It has, it's the picture of muzzling a horse or muzzling a dog where they can't open their mouth. Came out of him. The demon throws the man on the ground, but Luke tells us that he's not harmed, which is another evidence that the Savior of the world can rescue us from sin and Satan without harm and can set us free without damage. Jesus commands the demons to be silent, and you say, why would he tell the demon to shut up? This demon says, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. 
Jesus doesn't want his identity to be known and he doesn't want to have demons to be his publicity agents. Here's why. If the crowds who are watching are persuaded that Jesus has the power, they will take him and make him king now because they want an earthly king. The Jews wanted an earthly king with power to throw off Rome. That's not why Jesus came. He came the first time not to be an earthly king, but to suffer and die for the sins of the world. The second time he comes, he's going to come as a ruling king. If the authorities, the religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, if they're persuaded that he's the Messiah, they're going to try and kill him today, right now. Problem. Jesus is a three-year discipleship program he's got to complete. He's got 12 disciples he's got to train, and that's going to take three years to get done. So he's not ready to go to the cross. Jesus often said in scriptures, my time has not yet come. He's saying, it's not time for me to go to the cross, so I don't want to be revealed as the Messiah yet. The date that Jesus had with the cross, the exact date, the exact time was predetermined in eternity past. And that date was not yet. That's why Jesus forever, or, or well, not forever, but you'll see him multiple times. When he throws demons out, he says, shut up. Don't reveal who I am. You know, this should be pretty obvious to you and I today that occultic practices, Ouija boards, astrology, fortune telling, seances, and all those kinds of stuff, it's pretty obvious that's not from God. Believers should have nothing to do with that. I mean, it's pretty clear. Those kinds of things need to be rejected by followers of Christ. And of course, as the Christian, we know what our solution to demonic attack is. Put on the whole armor of God. Ephesians 6, verse 10. So Jesus is preaching with power. The people are amazed. Satan interrupts the service, trying to distract from the power and deceive the people. Direct confrontation. Jesus throws out the demon, demonstrates his divine power to set people free from Satan's kingdom. You're going to follow a Savior. Make sure your Savior's got some power. Well, this Savior has power. He can control the forces of evil. The crowd's reaction, verse 27. They were all amazed. And so they debated among themselves saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Immediately the news about him spread everywhere in all the surrounding region of Galilee. Here's the principle. Merely amazed does not save. Jesus' holy power should cause us to fear him as our judge, while his gracious love should cause us to trust him as our Savior. Merely amazed does not save. Jesus' holy power should cause us to fear him as our judge, while his gracious love should cause us to trust him as our Savior. These demons are terrified of Jesus' power because they understand their final doom. They know where they're going. They're going to the lake of fire. It's just a question of when. The crowds are amazed at Jesus' authority, but they don't fear because they don't understand the reality of their own doom without Christ. Amazed people and terrified demons are going to both spend eternity in the same place, the lake of fire. The demons know who Jesus was, and they can't be saved. 
The people don't believe who Jesus claimed to be, and they won't be saved. They chose not to be saved. See, when you encounter Jesus' holiness and Jesus' power, everywhere in Scripture where sinful humanity has a direct encounter with divinity, we immediately have a conviction of sin. What's the first thing came out of Isaiah's mouth? Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. When you encounter the holiness of God, it automatically shines the floodlight on our sin, and we are convicted that we are sinners, and it brings holy fear. And that is an appropriate response in the presence of holy God. We should be afraid. It's a rational decision, the rational response. And it should cause us to run to Jesus for forgiveness and grace. Because if you refuse Jesus as Savior, you will face Him as judge. So I tell people, number one, you're not staying here. Yeah, you get 70, 80 years, 30, 40, 20, whatever it is, you can't stay here. And number two, when you leave here, you have a date with Jesus Christ. All authority has been handed over to Jesus Christ. He is your Savior and your judge. And if you reject Him as Savior, you will face Him as judge. But you will surely face Him. When you leave here, you are going to face Jesus Christ. How you face Him depends on what you do today. Mark is basically saying, I'm demonstrating the servanthood of Christ but I'm demonstrating the deity of God's servant by revealing his power, his powerful words that brought conviction, and his powerful deeds that demonstrated his eternal power over the entire universe, including the supernatural spirit universe that we can't even see. He demonstrates two reactions. The disciples believe, but they don't understand. The demons believe and they cannot be saved. They already rebelled and there's no hope of redemption or repentance. The crowds, which represents the unsaved, they're impressed with his miracles, but they choose not to believe who he is. And you will see this throughout the Gospels. Throughout the Gospels. Power over the spirit world is evidence of Christ's deity, which should bring us to the point of repentance. Mark is highlighting the power of God's Son who serves God, smashes Satan's lies, and saves people. And he does that by demonstrating the power of Christ's words and the power of Christ's deeds as proof that he is the Son of God. The response we have is all important, and here's why. Many of you in this room, most of us in this room, have had a direct encounter with Jesus Christ, and we have been saved. And that's good. That's marvelous. The greatest gift in the world is your salvation. Every single day, God wants another direct encounter with you. He wants to walk with you day by day by day by day. He wants intimate fellowship with you day by day by day. And He will arrange your life to encourage that. We are in a battle with the powers of darkness over the souls of men and women. We need the power of Jesus Christ in our life every day to equip us to do the work that he's called us to do. We need his power to deal with the stuff that's going on in life. And we all have stuff, right? You all got stuff? 
The stuff in our life leaves scars. We got lots of scars as well. We serve a Savior who is powerful, who controls the universe and everything in it. So whatever problems we have, we need to be bringing them to this Savior who can fix them because he can save us and he has power. There is no circumstance he can't control. So let's review before Tom comes to lead us in prayer and praise because you have some prayer requests that you wrote down and some of these are big deals. Some of these prayer requests you're struggling with. I know that. They're big. But you serve a Jesus who is bigger. Number one. Those who follow Jesus are called to serve like Jesus, which means to work for the benefit of others, not yourself. We are servants. We're about serving others, not ourselves. Number two, Jesus taught God's word with authority, and so should we. We should prioritize the preaching of God's word with power. Number three, Jesus' power can set anyone free from their slavery to sin and Satan because Jesus is God. There are people in your life you're not quite sure Jesus can save. God, I don't know if you, this, this guy's, this gal, they're, they're, they're pretty hard. God saved you. He can save them. He already came to save them. You keep praying that the Holy Spirit will bring conviction of sin in their life. That they will not just be impressed with the Savior, they will submit to the Savior. Merely amazed does not save. Jesus' holy power should cause us to fear him as our judge. And by the way, we talk about Jesus as our friend. He is our friend, but he is God. We should come to him in awe and holy fear. And we turn to him and trust as our Savior because of his love. Okay, thank you. Uh, next week, read ahead, Lord willing. We'll continue in Mark 2. And three, feel free to read ahead as we go. I think you have enough and we have enough to obey uh, in the next 167 hours. So I love you guys. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.